Welcome to this edition of At The Mic. I'm your host, Keith Malinak. I want to thank you guys. I cannot say it enough. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your financial support. Um, the GoFundMe link that you came through with, with your donations, helping to keep this podcast going. I'm so grateful. Uh, it really helps out uh, with the equipment costs and the hosting costs and the um, website costs, all sorts of stuff associated. So thank you so much for all of your support. I'm sincerely grateful. And thank you for checking out our sponsors. Uh, APR Coffee, uh, Dr. Monroe's CBD products. Uh, they are the highest quality, uh, both companies, and I'm so proud to represent them. I hope you'll check out both of them, uh, both APRCoffee.com and Dr. Monroe's CBD.com. Uh, they're big parts of this program. Uh, Brad Thor, he's my guest this week. Uh, he and I talked about his fascinating life story, and uh, that's coming up in just a moment. First, let me tell you about that APR coffee, American Pride Roasters Coffee. This month's featured blend, it's the Jefferson. It's named for Thomas Jefferson. Do you realize that 50 years to the day of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, his lifelong friend, minus a few bumpy years, Anyway, both passed away within hours of each other. It is unbe- 50 years to the day of America becoming a nation. That's right. They passed away on July 4th, 1826. I mean, that is, that is so fascinating. How incredible is that? In honor of the great man that Thomas Jefferson was, American Pride Roasters Coffee is featuring a blend named after him for the rest of this month of June. Go and check it out. The Jefferson blend, it's, it's a medium roast with beans from South America, has a hint of vanilla bean in it as well. Oh my goodness, it is so great. You gotta check out this month's featured brew from aprcoffee.com. I mean, just making amazing coffees is just business as usual. That's the problem. You're gonna go to aprcoffee.com and there's gonna be so many things you want to try, want to put in your cart. Trust me. You're not going to go wrong. Try some today. Head over to aprcoffee.com in the special instructions section. Type in the letters ATM, stands for at the mic. Those three letters going to get you 10% off of your order. That's aprcoffee.com. Offer code ATM at checkout. You're listening to At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Brad Thor is one of the world's most prolific and successful writers. With his incredible ability to capture our imaginations with the adventures of his protagonist, Scott Harbath. On this episode of At The Mic, we talked to Brad about what he originally went to college for, how the main character in his novels got his name, and how a question, a train ride, and a magazine article changed Brad's life forever. He also gives us some tips on healthy living and talks about his flirtations of running for office and what the future may hold for him in the political realm. It's Brad Thor, my guest this week on At The Mic. Joined by Brad Thor, who has been called America's favorite author. He has sold, what What do you got, Brad, 15 million books in print at this point? My gosh, man. (laughs) <laughs> that is awesome. That, do you ever sit back and just say, wow, what a ride we're on, huh? 
You know, it's it's funny. The son of a Marine and my mom was a flight attendant for TWA, and they raised us never to rest on our laurels. Uh, uh -huh. You know, they say show up at work as if it's your first day and never forget that if you don't do it right, it could be your last day at the office. So <laughs> uh, it is kind of hard to believe there's that many books out there. Uh, my new book is the 21st one I've written. So, uh, yeah, it's been quite a, quite a journey, but I think just being the Midwestern uh guy with a good work ethic i'm always looking forward it's i don't look over my shoulder that much i probably should and appreciate uh, all that's been accomplished <laughs> no that's so cool because you were born in chicago yep. and was your childhood were, were you basically raised uh in chicago then yeah so right downtown chicago uh my dad was from the south side the marine corps was his ticket out of the south side of chicago and my mom was from a suburb called Park Forest, and uh, they met downtown Chicago, and that's where I was born and raised. I read something where you talked about your dad, who you just mentioned, being a Marine. He, correct me if I'm wrong, wanted you to go into business, correct? Yeah, so my dad went to school on the GI Bill, and he started his own business and that kind of stuff, and he wanted me and my brother to come on board and take over, uh, essentially have it be a family business that we would join after college. And my brother and I uh, both went into television after college, which is kind of funny. <laughs> Gosh, because you went to school at Southern Cal, correct? Yep, correct. And you, I guess you, you started studying business and what, about a year into it, you realized, oh my gosh, my passion is writing. Is that how that went down? Yeah, pretty much. I, I really didn't like being a business major, and I remember it was Valentine's Day was coming up, and we had an economics class, and this economics professor was so excited. He said, I've got the best way to teach you about economics. Okay, you manage six flower stores. You've got X amount of orders for roses, but only so many vases, and I closed my textbook. And my friends sitting next to me said, what are you doing? And I said, listen, I'd rather take a bullet between the eyes than be a middle manager in a flower store chain uh, for the rest of my life. And they said, it's just an exercise. This is just a way to get you thinking about economics. And I said, yeah. I said, this runs a lot deeper than uh, flower stores and economics classes. I'm just not happy with my major. And I walked out of the classroom not knowing what I was going to do. And I spent a couple of days kind of down in the dumps and saying, I don't know what I'm going to study. And a friend recommended I go to the college counseling office, and I did, and they gave me a test. At that time, it was called the Strong Campbell Personality Test, and it compared your interests and passions with uh, people who were considered successful and fulfilled in their careers. Didn't mean that you actually had an aptitude for those arenas, but uh. it just meant that your interests line up with these people who do these jobs and love their jobs. And I scored off the charts for writing and publishing. And I'd wanted to be a writer ever since I was a little boy. But uh, in my family, the, the arts were something to make you better rounded. They were not a career path. Uh, so without telling my dad, without telling my mom, I switched my major to creative writing and uh, also film and television <laughs> production. And uh, I switched it, but didn't declare. I guess to be to be clear, I went and started taking classes for those majors. And oh, okay. uh, they told me in the registrar's office, they said, "Listen, you know, a week before graduation, you know, you can switch it so that you get the right thing on your diploma and everything." And they said, "You really need to stay on top of this and make sure you're taking all the classes you need and all that stuff." So that's what I ended up doing. <laughs> so Bait when did your parents right? When did they realize? 
that you had changed your major. When did that come? Well, my dad's a pretty smart guy, and copies of the report <laughs> cards went home. So it okay. took about a year, year and a half, and he's like, okay, I'm seeing introduction to poetry writing, fiction writing, uh, from page <laughs> to screen uh, class. He said, I'm not seeing a lot of business classes on here anymore. So, yeah, one year when I was home for vacation, he... he he dropped the hammer on me and I had to come clean. He swept me and I, I, I had to just tell him everything that I had done. But by that time, it was late 80s, early 90s, and a lot of bond traders had been leaving New York to go to Hollywood to do uh, financing for films. And that those stories were making it into mainstream business publications like Fortune and Forbes, things that my dad would read. So he thought I was ahead of the curve. And he said, well, let's get you a finance master's degree. I mean, he was pushing, pushing, pushing in these areas I didn't want to go into. And I just said, okay, well, let's see. Let me finish up this creative writing, film and TV stuff, and then we can talk about a master's degree. And I never got a master's. <laughs> Man, that that's great. I, I want to talk about you have a younger brother, and his name is Scott, and it's spelled with one T. I love the story on how he ended up with just the one T. My brother is Scott Thor. My mom did not want him to write S-C-O-T-T-T-H-O-R. She thought they were three T's in a row were too many. So when right. I named my protagonist, I named him Scott, like my brother with one T, and I had so many readers say, why does, it have, why does he have one T? So I gave Scott Harvath the middle name Thomas and said that his mother didn't want him to write S-C-O-T-T-T-H-O-M-A-S, Harvath. That is so great. That is such an homage to your family, just kind of tucked in there uh, with the story. Which, by the way, the Scott Harvath series, you said you're, you've written 21 books now. Tw this is the 20th one in the Scott Harvath series, correct? Right. So my newest book is Black Ice, and that is the Black 20th. Ice. I did a spin-off series called The Athena Project. That's how you get to 21. I'd done one book in that uh, franchise, but this is the 20th Scott Harvath book. And Keith, I've said this to you before when we've gotten together. I, I say my books are like the James Bond movies. You don't need to have seen all the movies to go out and see the yes. latest one. That is such an important point. You're so accurate on that. I love the way that you are able to do that. Where if, if you just randomly pick up any in the series, it's totally fine. You don't have to start at book number one. Uh, I think that's a great way to do that, and I commend you for that. Thank you. So, yeah, um, you mentioned there about how you and your brother got into TV. You... What you hosted a show? What was it? Uh, Traveling Light? Is that is that? Yep. Accurate. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was on public television. Are those episodes online anywhere? Are those available where people could go and see that? You know what? I never put them online. Uh, okay. So yeah, I'd have to renew the music licenses and things like that to put them on there because uh, we just had a special broadcast rate because it was going out on public television. And then you could back then you could get the VHS tape and then you could get the DVD if you wanted to order afterwards. So, uh, so no, nowhere, nowhere online. In fact, I just, uh, we were talking about uh, doing a project and a group wanted to see an episode. So I'm like, okay, well, the fastest way for me to do this is just to upload it and give you a private link on YouTube. And as soon as I uploaded one episode to YouTube, there's some bot that scrubs and goes through and it picked up the music and it flagged it as a violation because the music was not currently uh, under license with the uh, music production house. I mean, it was amazing how quick that video was flagged and it was private. It's not like I was putting it out for everybody, but uh, they're very sophisticated with, uh, you know, cracking down on piracy and uh, tracking those rights. I know exactly what you're talking about because with 
Pat Gray show, uh, what I produce uh, at The Blaze, we get stuff like that all the time. I mean, it's it's instant. You're right. So you go to college. We're now in the mid-90s. Tell us about you meeting your wife, Trish, and then tell us about that uh, particular moment in Italy. So uh, I was home from, uh, I'd been based overseas to do my first season of shows for Traveling Light, uh, which for those of you listening to this that don't know what Traveling Light was, I I did a lot of travel uh, when I got out of college and I thought, that's cool. Yeah, I I saved my money. (laughs) I worked renting apartments in LA, got me a discount on my apartment and allowed me to save money and everything. And I always thought that travel made me a better American. Uh, seeing my country from abroad made me realize how lucky I am to have been born right. in the United States. So I wanted to give that uh, encouragement to other young people. Don't wait till you're retired to go out and see the world. Do it now. So we, I pitched the show to public television as being for 18 to 34-year-olds. Here's how to go to Europe, have a good time on a budget. And uh, they loved it. They aired me back-to-back with Rick Steves, who was the big travel person. And those blocks were always really successful. We had great numbers. And we had fans well into their 70s who loved to watch the show. They loved the energy. They, they thought it was a lot of fun. It was, it was night and day different uh, from Rick Steves. So uh, I had been doing these shows. I came home to visit uh, my family because I had a ticket that I had to use uh, before it expired. And I was going to go back overseas and make some more shows. And while I was home, uh, I bumped into a friend uh, who invited me to a wine tasting party at his house. He said, oh, my wife and I are having a bunch of friends over. What I didn't know was they had only invited their single friends. So what they were trying to do was pair people up. And I met my wife at that wine tasting party. And a few years later, we got married. And when we were on our honeymoon, in it, uh, we, we did an around-the-world trip. My wife had never been out of the country. And so I wanted her to see the world. There were parts of it I had not seen. So I bought us around-the-world tickets. You could have X amount of stops as long as you kept going in the same direction, which was kind of cool. So we went to Hong Kong and Macau. We went to Australia. We went to Egypt, uh, all over Europe. And when we were in Italy, one night we were having wine, sitting in a piazza, and my wife asked me an interesting question, kind of a question I think you probably ought to ask your potential spouse before you get married. But she said, (laughs) what would you regret on your deathbed never having done? And I said, writing a novel and getting it published. And she said, okay, when we get home, you need to start making that uh, a priority. Take two hours a day, protected time, and, and do it. And it had long been a dream of mine, but I'd, uh, I'd been afraid of failure. I, I think we all have that voice in the back of our heads at, at different times in our lives that says, ah, you know what, don't, don't risk it. Don't, don't do that mm. thing. You might embarrass yeah. yourself. And I tell people, I think that which we are most destined to do in life, we're also most afraid of. And while the success is nice, the biggest sense of accomplishment for me came from overcoming that fear. I would never go to my deathbed wondering what might my life have been like if I'd only tried to write a book. That, that, what a life-changing question. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, I'm so glad she asked that. that and that was really, that was kind of the first in a series of, of great experiences that led to where you are today. Um, Tell us about that that 
that fateful train ride you were on. Yeah, so it's uh, with me saying that to my wife, it, it seemed to unlock a series of doors uh, mm-hmm. because we had an overnight train ride from Munich, where we had been for Oktoberfest, to Amsterdam. And we ended up sharing a, an overnight compartment with a lovely brother and sister uh, around our age from Atlanta, Georgia, who loved to travel together. And they were big fans of my TV show. And I stayed up most of the night talking to the sister about our shared love of books. And it was really neat. And she recommended, uh, she's actually the one that turned me on to Vince Flynn. She said, oh, there's this book, uh, this new author, Vince Flynn. It's called Transfer of Power. And you'd love it. Sounds like really up your alley. We get into Amsterdam the next morning and uh, she had asked me before we all turned off the lights and went to sleep what I was doing once we got home from the honeymoon. Was I going to be doing more TV shows? And I said, actually, I'm going to write a novel. Uh, And so when we pulled into Amsterdam the next morning, I grabbed one of my business (laughs) cards and she went and handed me hers. And she hadn't said anything until right at that moment. I saw her business card. She was a sales rep for Simon & Schuster. And she said, if you you actually do write that novel, uh, give me a call. I'd like to read it. Maybe I can help you at Simon & Schuster. And uh, that's that's where I've been for all 21 books because of Cindy Jackson. (laughs) Little did she know that the novel that was rolling around in your head would become what it is today and little did your wife know i mean what if she had asked you that question about would you have any deathbed regrets if she had waited till you got back home you would have never had that conversation preceding the cindy conversation i just think that is awesome that is so cool yeah it was really meant to be yeah and it it even goes deeper than that if i'm not mistaken where did you pick up the because you had the title for your first book, uh, what was it, the, the Lions of Lucerne? Is that right? Right. We had done a TV show, a TV episode in Lucerne, Switzerland of Traveling uh-huh. Light, and there is a monument uh, carved in a rock face there of a dying lion with a spear broken off in its side, and it was carved to commemorate the 700-plus Swiss guard who died in the initial throes of the French Revolution defending King Louis and Marie Antoinette. And I, I said to myself when I saw that, I said, if I ever write a book, I love the way that sounds, The Lion of Lucerne, but I'm going to do The mm-hmm. Lions of Lucerne. I don't know what the book will be about. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I just like that title. And it's funny, after I got Cindy's business card and Trish and I uh, arrived at our hotel in Amsterdam, uh, the manager said, listen, I'm so sorry. The room's not ready yet, uh, but there's a great cafe around the corner. And if you want to scoot over there, grab a coffee, grab a sandwich, by the time you get back, uh, your room will be ready. And they were really, because we're honeymooning, they were decorating it and everything, and it did flowers and candy. It was really nice what they did. But we went to the cafe, and my wife is very much like the Western writer Louis L'Amour. And Louis L'Amour was famous uh, for always having a book, paperback, in his back pocket. So my wife always has a book of some kind on her person at all times. So if Louis L'Amour was standing in line at the post office, out comes the book. My wife's waiting for one of the kids at the orthodontist, out comes the book. So um, she started reading as we waited for our food to come to the table, and I looked around and found uh, the International Herald Tribune, which was a newspaper in English, and I was flipping through it, and I found this little uh, intelligence briefing about a Swiss intelligence officer who had embezzled all this money from the Swiss government and was training his own shadow militia high in the Alps with high-tech weapons from his own private arsenal. 
And I said, okay, that's those guys are the Lions of Lucerne, and that's what my first book is going to be about, somehow tying these guys in. And I we were living in Park City, Utah at the time, and Bill Clinton had come out twice for Chelsea's birthday, and I was fascinated yes. with, uh, they'd come out to ski. Well, how do you secure a ski hill for a president? Do you just close it down for the day? No, they keep it open. And so I reached out and networked to some Secret Service people and said, tell me what you can about how this works. And so the idea of kidnapping a president while they were on a ski vacation in Park City and hiring these Swiss mercenaries to do it, uh, I was like, okay, that's my story. That's the Lions of Lucerne. Your story is just one awesome event after another. It eventually leads to, I mean, you're invited to government facilities. Your, your ability to effectively predict the future with our country. What is your writings, what have they led to as far as your interaction with government that I guess you're allowed to tell us? You know, because yeah. you've seen, you've been behind the curtain, man. A, a little bit. I've gotten, I've been able to do some really cool things. Probably one of the greatest honors was after 9-11, uh, the government set up what I think is one of the most forward-thinking and aggressive uh, federal programs I've ever heard of. And it was called the Analytic Red Cell Unit. And the, long before the 9-11 Commission came out with its report, the U.S. government said, you know what, we got caught with our creative pants down. We were not imaginative enough as far as what the attacks uh, we were facing might look like. So they said, let's get non-military, non-intelligence agency, non-government people into DC to help us war game what might come next, both for us at home and abroad. So they brought in people like me, uh, Michael Bay, the director of the Transformers movies and the Benghazi movie, and we brainstormed with them, here are areas you might want to look at, here's different attack scenarios, and then they would feed us information uh, or little tidbits. You know, I always suspected they had pieces of information that they couldn't connect, like puzzle pieces without the box. You know, you couldn't see what the puzzle was. You just had a handful of pieces and they would say, okay, if you had this, this, and this, how would you connect it? Um, and we, of course, were bound uh, not to discuss anything that went on in there, but they did publicize one scenario, which was how might terrorists take advantage of hurricane season? So if a hurricane was barreling down on Galveston or New Orleans and you had people in shelters, might terrorists attack the shelters? Uh, a lot of critical equipment gets moved out of the path of the hurricane. So whether those are ambulances, fire trucks, uh, you know, bulldozers, things like that, and they get marshaled in a yard someplace deeper inland, might they attack that? So they're all, that was the one thing that they published to give an example to the American public of the kinds of things they were looking at. So very, very cool cool group. I had this Jack Bauer guy that uh, I had a cup of coffee with uh, during one of the breaks and we stood in this little kitchenette room uh, where the coffee was and this guy, I don't know what got us on the subject, but he started digging around in the trash. He goes, well, let me show you the kinds of stuff we learn. And he's digging around in the trash and he pulls out <laughs> ingredients to make a bomb. He said, I could make a bomb out of this. There was like a butane lighter somebody had thrown away, a surgical glove. And he said, let me explain to you how I would fill this with gas and then I would attach it to my cell phone and I could ring my cell phone from a landline and it wouldn't be a huge explosion, but enough to be a, a diversionary. And for me, a guy who loves this world, I, it was like being a kid in a kid. Andy store. It was pretty cool to hang out with some of these people. Wow. And an wow. honor to serve. I mean, my dad's a Marine, no longer active. Right. But for me to be invited to serve my country, not by picking up a rifle, but by using my creativity and my brain power, uh, it's one of the greatest honors I've, I've ever uh, enjoyed. 
That's really cool, man. And 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 before you were this phenomenally successful writer, you've held other jobs, man. Uh, I know that you've been a server at a restaurant, mm-hmm. uh, a bartender. I gotta know, what's the best drink that you make? <laughs> the best drink I make. Um, <laughs> You know what? It's funny because I worked at a bar in Greece and we sold a lot of beer, a lot of shots, uh, <laughs> and uh, the cocktails were actually my boss's responsibility. It's kind of funny. I had a brilliant boss, uh, two bosses, two British expatriates had this really cool cocktail bar in Greece and uh, they came up with a great money-making uh, idea, which was they had like a punch card and if you had 10 of their high-end cocktails during your stay on the island, you got a free t-shirt, which the boss made in the back of his house, uh, and you got your name <laughs> written on the wall. So everybody wanted their name on the wall. So he, he had all these wild cock- things I'd never even heard of, bird, bird of paradise and all this kind of stuff. I tried to, there was like a book behind the bar, and I was so slow at learning the cocktails that I was only allowed to pour shots and beers, and he would do the, uh, he'd do the fancy stuff. <laughs> That's awesome. So, okay, when you were a waiter, mm-hmm. uh, what's 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 the worst encounter you had? The the most rude customer that you had that you had to serve. You know what? I'll tell you. It's you, anybody who's been in the service industry knows that you just can't let it get to you. Um, yeah. I had my best day and my best customer and my worst customer on the same day. So I had oh, a wow. guy that was just with his girlfriend and he was trying to show off and impress her you know everything got sent back nothing was done properly and just was grinding my (laughs) gears and then i had another thing where the local weatherman came in and he's just very kind and he gave me a huge tip so you know you've got to there's more good people in this world keith i really believe that than there are bad people and i always try to remind myself uh, you know everybody's got their cross to bear some people do it with grace. Um, some people don't, but I always try to remind myself that typically people who are disagreeable to be around are hurting in some fashion. So if you can mm. leave a little room for grace, uh, you know, you may be the one person that has the is the pivot point for their day that can either make it terribly, terribly worse, or maybe set them on a road to, to or set them on the path to making it better. So even at a young age, that's the way I tried to approach it. Never spit in anybody's a- food. You know, never did, never did any of that. Uh, you know, I always tried to be, you know, good in that, in that sense, because I wouldn't want anybody to no. do that to me. Uh, sure. So, and that's a that's a good approach. So, do you have any hobbies? And I guess my follow up question would be, you probably like to read. And then the follow up question from that would be, who does a world famous author read? When, when you're not having to write your own books. So that's a so let's see. So hobby wise, I'm a I enjoy shooting. I've always enjoyed shooting sports. Um, I like you know the three gun stuff is really really cool, and that's a that's a new area that I want to get deeper into. Where you do pistol, mm. shotgun, and tactical rifle. Um, uh, you know, one of my favorite things is uh, Keanu Reeves and how intensely he trained for John Wick. And how uh, he even handles uh, squib rounds and you know stovepiping, all the malfunctions and things like that, and clears and, and goes and keeps shooting. So I'm a big fan of uh, of being the best that you can be. And in fact, I've gotten into taking classes that purposely stress you out 
and then expect you to shoot because that's if you ever heaven forbid you ever have to you ever find yourself in a situation where you're going to have to use your handgun against another human being uh, or or your shotgun or whatever weapon you might have it's going to be highly stressful so just standing in front of a target shooting is not going to be the kind of training that you need so uh, you want your heart rate up you want to be you know sweating uh, even better if the if the instructor can set up your weapon so that it malfunctions kind of a thing wow. so that's 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 good. Um, and I, wait, wait, hold on, yeah. hold on. I, I don't want to interrupt you there, but I've never, as a gun owner myself, I've never thought of that. Like, why am I going, you know, in front of a target at the range? I should be figuring out uh, uh, high stressful situations. You know. So here's my question to that: Is where do you go to get this kind of training? And 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 I love the idea of like the guns malfunction. What are you gonna do? But what else is involved with that? Do you know? Like, are are things jumping out at you? Like, what? So, so there's a in Nashville where I live, uh, south of Nashville where I live. There's a group called Agape Tactical, and the guys at Agape are really good. You know, they'll put dummy rounds in your gun and all that kind of stuff. Um, they'll make you lug uh, like the sandbags and stuff that you would see in CrossFit. Uh, run up and down stairs and all that kind of stuff and then only have X amount of time. A lot of stuff under the timer, which adds to the stress. You have to get off X amount of rounds. They have to be you know, okay. in a certain grouping okay. and things like that. But a lot of attempting to get your heart rate up, to get the adrenaline going, to mimic what you know that dump that you might see in a in a stressful situation. They've done stuff where they've said, okay, you've got to do this, this, this. Leave your weapon here. You've got to run the obstacle course and then come back. And you have to put six six shots within you know certain pie pan at you know it's sixty yards, whatever it is. And you come back and the clock's ticking and they disassembled your weapon. So you need to completely, wow. yeah, I mean, it's, they're very creative guys that I work with here. So this, that, that got, we even had a member, they do a lot of church uh, security team training uh, as well to, to help uh, churches be safe. And uh, I, I have been with some church going folks that, uh, that have let a couple of choice words slip that I never thought I would hear them say, but coming back <laughs> and finding your weapon in pieces uh, and being under the, under the, Ticking clock uh, it creates some interesting reactions. I've got to look into that. That sounds fun. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, other hobbies uh, for the Brad Thor here. You know, I'm a, I've always been a big reader, and I really believe that you can't be even a halfway decent writer unless you're a voracious reader. Um, Stephen King had a great piece of advice once, which is write what you love to read because that's where your passion is. And it's true. I, ever since I was a kid, I used to, my parents, big readers, and my dad and my mom loved Clancy and Ludlum and Forsyth. And whenever they would finish one of those books, I'd steal it. I was probably reading those books way too young, but I loved them. <laughs> I absolutely did. So I'm, I'm a big time reader. So there's a lot of um, authors. There's so many good ones out there. Uh, and they keep coming up. You know, we see a lot of guys coming out of the military now, like my, my buddy Jack Carr, who's a great yeah. author. He and I had a funny uh, discussion because he said he always wanted to be a Navy SEAL and an author. And I said, well, I'm similar, except you're smarter than I am because I always wanted to be an author and a Navy SEAL. I did it in the wrong order. I'm too old to be a Navy SEAL now. Uh, but Jack did his uh, time as a SEAL and now is a, is a terrific, terrific author. He and I met through another very dear friend of mine from the SEAL teams, 
and I've had a nice relationship with Jack for many years, and he moved to Park City, Utah, which is kind of cool, uh, which is where we used to live. And I was scheduled to go out with my family for spring break, March 2020, and the day before, Friday the 13th, uh, we canceled the trip. I was going to go out and see Jack. We were going to ski all that kind of stuff, and unfortunately had to shut it down because of the pandemic. Ironically enough, Jack Carr was the guest on this podcast just a couple of weeks ago. People want to go and check that out when we're done here. Um, Okay, favorite book that you have read in your lifetime? Easy. It's called Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett. Great book. It's So when cathedrals were built, uh, they would take you know, more than one lifespan. Uh, you know, it could be hundreds of years to complete a cathedral. And the so it is a story about the building of one cathedral, but it weaves in all these tales of people's lives that touched the cathedral that were involved, all the good things, bad things that happened. Uh, it's just, a, it's a sweeping drama. It's a great book. For a thriller, for a thriller, I will tell you, one of, so something exciting, pulse-pounding, one of the best books I've ever read is by a writer named William Forschin, and he's Newt Gingrich's writing partner. They did all the Civil War uh, books together, and it w- and his book is called One or it's either One or Ten Seconds After. Uh, I'd have to. Yes. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. I don't have it on the yes. shelf here. Uh, that's where the EMP bomb goes off. They don't know. He he. The the protagonist picks up the phone. It's his brother calling from the Pentagon to warn him. And before his brother can explain what's going on, the phone goes dead. The lights go dead. He looks out the window, and the cars on the highway have come to a complete stop. Uh, and so it's it is an unbelievable book. It is so well done. So. Uh, I, I think it's, you know, 28 Days Later is my favorite, one of my favorite zombie movies. So all these days later or seconds later, they all start to kind of blur. It, uh, and I'm sitting here and I don't have the courage to take the bandwidth to hop on to like barnesandnoble.com and look up the correct. I'm afraid it'll screw up our uh, podcast here. So William Forstgen, it's, it's, he's written a couple books in the series, but it's, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it's one second after and it, Oh, it's so good. So good. Okay, so I just looked it up here. It's one second after. Okay, good. I was, I was I, right. Yes, that's okay. I'm familiar enough with that book to know that I've always wanted to read it, and now I've got to. Oh, I've, I've got so to make good. it happen. Yeah, it's fantastic. Okay. What's your favorite musical genre, Brad? I gotta tell you, I'm a big funk fan. Uh, one of the coolest things is uh, I, Scott Harvath likes funk music, and he puts a lot of uh, Parliament Funkadelic, uh, I, or I put them in. Like Harvath will hop in a cab, and there'll be P Funk on the radio or <laughs> something like that. And what's really cool is, you know, these are all George Clinton songs, and um, my publisher was celebrating, you know, some milestone anniversary. I can't remember if it was 100 years or 150 years. And I got to go to the party and um, somebody, one of the muckety muck executives from Simon & Schuster said, come over here. I've got somebody I want you to meet. And it was George Clinton from Parliament. Ah, I mean, I have loved this guy, the atomic dog himself. And he goes, (laughs) you're the writer that puts our songs in all your novels. I'm like, oh, my gosh, George Clinton knows that I put P-Funk songs in the books. So... uh, I, I, I'm also a rock fan, so um, I just actually, uh, one of the fun things that we did for Black Ice is I put together a playlist uh, on my website of songs that, you know, I had going while I was writing. So, you know, some Aerosmith, some 
Bob Seger, just all sorts of really, really cool stuff. So That's cool. Yeah, I see when I write these books, I see them as movies. So they play out in my mind as a movie would unfold. So I need a soundtrack for when the helicopter's lip, lifting off or you know somebody's being chased. Having the music going it really adds to the intensity for me as a writer. Every life moment has a soundtrack. Yep. You know, and, and I think that's really cool how you uh, incorporated that uh, with the latest book there. So what's your favorite app? You're a hip guy. I'm sure you uh, mess around on your phone here. What, what's uh, what's Brad Thor's favorite app? So I'm a rabid workout fanatic. I love to work out. I've got a gym at home. I really think it is the key to staying young. In fact, there was a great book uh, that several friends had recommended. And then when I, uh, a couple of physicals back, my doctor had said, have you heard of this book called Younger Next Year? And I'm like, yeah, you and everybody else I know has been talking about it. And he said, you should read it. <laughs> so I picked up this book called Younger Next Year. And the premise is, is that we are not built for the 21st century. We are built for very rough living back on the savanna in Africa. And that mm. if we sit on the couch and watch Netflix, there is a slow leak of a very destructive chemical in our body that breaks us down. But if you work out and you work out hard, you, within reason, you send a signal to your body that it still needs to build muscle. You still need your lung capacity, wow. your heart capacity, all this kind of stuff. So what happens is, is when you break your body down with tough workouts, the chemicals that come into repair are stronger than the ones breaking you down. In that 80% of the illness that we see in our 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s uh, can be avoided. And you can start at any time resetting. So this leads me to the app thing, which is I've got an app. Um, it's all, uh, you record what you eat. So it is, what is this called? This is called My Fitness Pal. And um, what's cool about it is I paid the 20 bucks to get the, to go above the free level. And I can scan barcodes of anything I'm about to eat and it will put it in and I can track during the day. So it's a big thing for me to track, you know, how much sugar am I getting, how much, you know, when you work out as much as, as I do, that stuff, you, you really start looking for where can you adjust to make, make a difference. Am I getting enough protein and all that kind of stuff? I just, uh, I just binged last night, uh, Wall Street, uh, W-A-H-L, all about Mark Wahlberg uh, and his business <laughs> ventures on HBO Max. And it was, it was fascinating to watch him because he's such a workout hound and he and I are about the same age and stuff. So, so my fitness pal is my favorite app. Um, I really, uh, that, that's one that I really, really enjoy. So you're, you're saying that I should probably start to take care of myself, huh? It's never too late. It's, you can build uh -huh. muscle into your nineties. It, it, it just, you know, I, I've got kids, I've got so many things I want to do. And if, if exercise in, once it becomes a habit, it really gets easier. It can be tough to get started. And I know there's a lot of people out there that would like to, and you, you have to believe me that it is a habit. If you can do something for three weeks, if you can do it every day for three weeks, or maybe six days a week, give yourself that one day off, that Sunday, or however you want to do it. But it, it, it really is all about creating a habit, and not just uh -huh. a diet, but a lifestyle change. That's what I want to ask you. You mentioned diet. How important is diet? If, if physical activity is so important, 
uh, if you had to do a percentage, is it a 50-50 thing between uh, physical activity and diet, or, or is, it, is it weighted one direction or the other? There's a uh, physical fitness coach named Bill Phillips, and he had a great way of explaining it. He said, exercise is the spark, but diet is the fuel. That's what's going to power your rocket to where you want to go. So it, it is important, and that's why the MyFitnessPal, mm-hmm. which is free, to download is such a great tool. I've got a buddy, one of my best friends from high school. He's got a business now where he tries to, and he was always a fitness fanatic, even when we were in high school. His his mission in life is to teach people how to be healthy. So he has a lot of overweight clients that come to him to try to lose, uh, you know, some of them a lot of weight, some of them just a little bit around the edges and everything. And he has them get this app because when he walks through and says, well, let's talk about what you ate yesterday. People are stunned when they don't keep track of what they're eating, how many calories they're actually consuming. So when you get into it, it really is, and it doesn't take long to start dropping weight and to start seeing your clothes are looser and all this kind of stuff. It is this, uh, it's this wonderful feeling that you get when you're being successful in taking good care of yourself. And your friends notice and they're jealous as hell, which is another great, <laughs> you know, they, what have you been doing? You know, it's, uh, when I went on, uh, when I really got on this kick a couple of years ago, I had, and it was back to school night. Uh, so a lot of the parents had not seen me uh, since uh, the end of the previous school year. And we went back to meet the teachers and all that kind of stuff. And it's, you know, you spend 10 minutes in each classroom, then the bell rings, you go to the next teacher's room. And I had all these dads stopping me going, what have you been doing? How'd you lose the weight? Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it's it's nothing. It's I, I, I work out at home, but I don't have a lot of... Uh, fancy equipment and stuff uh there's a there's a blogger on youtube i love this guy he's canadian his name is lawrence and his channel on youtube is called fit and 50. uh and it doesn't matter if you're 50 or not Uh, i mean if you're middle-aged and you're looking to do stuff uh, his exercises are fantastic and he's the most charming delightful guy and he's ripped he's like 53 54 he's ripped uh, and uh he devours uh, exercise physiology white papers. That's all this guy does in his spare time when he's not making videos and working out is he really goes into the science, but he makes it understandable. Uh, and so, I, you know, it's funny, you asked me what my hobbies were, and I've spent more time talking about physical fitness and diet than I have about, you know, the guns and the shooting and the tactical stuff. <laughs> I so it. I guess this is, this is a, a, a hobby as well, the physical fitness. I mean- do you have a comfort food? I mean, is there anything where you ever, you know, cheat? And oh, say, yeah. Oh, Uh-oh. Yeah. What is that? What is that? It's pizza. And it's like a yes, supreme meat lover's pizza. You know, those nights where I don't, don't want to cook. It's perfect food. Yeah, no, it is. It is the perfect food. And, and I pay for it when I get on the scale the next morning. But you know what? <laughs> Life is meant to be lived. And I don't think you should deny yourself uh, special treats every once in a while. It's like saying, well, I'm never going to go on vacation. I'm going to put all the money in the bank for retirement. You can't do that. Any interesting talents that you have? Maybe something that uh, people don't know about you that you like to do? You know, I, I did a travel show, so I love travel. I love other cultures. Um, I speak French. Uh, which is pretty mm. cool because I went to my mom had to learn French when she was a flight attendant for TWA. So we had it. Oh. My mom spoke to us growing up. And then I went to school, grade school in Chicago. Uh, it was a school run by a French order of nuns. And so we had French every single day. Took it in high school. Easiest day. 
Um, and then when I got to, <laughs> when I got to college, I decided to do a semester abroad and I went to Paris and that's what really cemented my ability with the language is being totally immersed in French round the clock every single day. So, uh, so special skill, I, I've always liked languages. I've been a good mimic. I can pick up accents very well. And when I used to travel all the time, I could meet people and I could tell you what part of the world they were from, even what part of what country they were from just by the accent. Wow. I used to have a really finely tuned ear for that. Uh, not as much anymore because you know I've spent my time writing the books and being a dad and raising a family. Uh, so I haven't been traveling as much. Uh, so that's that's a perishable skill. You just reminded me of a question that I want to ask you, and I had forgotten earlier. Um, your latest book, Black Ice, 20th in the Scott Harvath series, you just mentioned how you spend your time writing books, obviously. Mm -hmm. So here's my question for you. When you first started this series, did you have any idea that it would be going along, this series would go along this this long this many books or are you i don't want to say making it up as you go along are you just kind of inventing stories along the way like how how has this process played out you have a huge whiteboard in your basement with a timeline on it like how, how does this how does it go it's a it's a great question keith i had never intended for this to be a series i i thought i would be like michael Crichton, and i would write one book and then the next book would have a whole different protagonist and different set of characters and it would be fun to come up with new ones and my editor said to me she goes Brad how many people how many authors do you read and you read because it's the same character coming back and you want to take another adventure with that character because they've become a part of your family a part of your life and I said well actually probably more uh, than than not and she said well we've we've given your book to test readers. They love this Scott Harvath character. <laughs> if you write another one with Scott Harvath, you're going to have this audience that's going to be so happy. You've really done a good job. And to not come back to Harvath would be doing that character, the readers, that you're going to build a disservice. And so uh, that's how that happened. But it's, it's tough. It's tough to come up with new plots, new ideas yeah. uh, that, that Harvath, situations Harvath hasn't been in before, and then to continually reveal a little bit more about the main character so that you're learning a little bit more about him with each book. So uh, Black Ice for me uh, was such a cool concept because I think a lot of people are just starting to look north to the new Cold War that's erupting in the Arctic, and particularly right. with the Chinese and the Russians and what they're doing up there and how tense things are and what, what the stakes are. I, the stuff that I learned in researching, and this is a thriller, but Glenn coined the term, Glenn Beck coined the term faction. And you know he's always said about my books, he said, you don't know where the facts end and the fiction begins in Brad's books. So true. And that's yes. part of the fun. We'll get back to our chat with Brad in just a moment, but first, I'm to talk to you about pain. If you know me at all, you know that I am no stranger to it. I have injured practically every area of my body, and recently, I underwent hip surgery, and that, oh, was such a blast. But the complicating thing about my recovery was how sensitive the skin on my leg got afterward. I couldn't touch it. I was in so much pain. It was very tender. And that's where I was introduced to Dr. Monroe's pain cream. It soothed away the pain, 
it allowed me to focus on the physical therapy stuff again instead of what was going on with my skin. I, I've told you about Nancy and her titanium screws in her ankle and how Dr. Monroe's pain cream brought relief to her world and she no longer dreaded getting up in the morning. You can have a similar experience as well. Unlike other products that can take weeks to build up in your system, Dr. Monroe's pain cream is able to provide targeted relief within minutes. Get your mobility back. Get your life back. This pain cream uses patent-pending technology developed by Dr. Stephen Monroe. It makes this CBD product unlike anything else that's available to you. All of the many products from Dr. Monroe's CBD are all specially formulated. You got zero THC, so you're not going to get high. You're not going to have brain fog or test positive on a drug test. You get all the positives of the hemp plant without any of the negatives. Remember, that's a risk-free trial that they're offering to you. And there's so many other products to choose from. Visit DrMonroe'sCBD.com today. Make pain optional, not required in your life. DrMonroe'sCBD.com. DrMonroe'sCBD.com. Do you have any idea of how many more adventures we're going to have with Scott Harvath? I just signed a new contract with Simon & Schuster uh, for four books. Uh -huh. So I know there'll, okay. be, there'll be at least four four books more um, okay. and uh, I have little kind of data points. Um, I, I really want to get this next book. Uh, it's, I want to sit down and start page one, uh, right? My kids are getting out of school. I want to, I want to begin it. Uh, they, they've got their summer jobs and everything. And I want to, I really want to get cracking on it. So I've got some really cool, real world things uh and i like to write about stuff that's just about to happen sort of a thing and so mm -hmm. I, i'm as we're recording this uh something that happened was the ryan air flight being skyjacked uh by, by belarus and uh being forced to land yeah. I, and so they could rip that dissident off there but it was fascinating because four kgb guys get on this flight from, um, it started in Athens, and I forget where the end point was supposed to be. Oh, I think it was supposed to be Latvia. But four KGB guys get on what, with this dissident. The dissident doesn't know the KGB guys are on the airplane. But then these guys, when they get close to Belarus, uh, they fake a bomb threat and lean on the flight attendants. The flight, the plane's going to blow up. You need to land. You need to land. Belarus sends up a MiG to escort the jet down. I mean... I, if I had written something like this in a book, I don't know that people would believe it. So that kind of right. stuff is fascinating to me and, and could play in in one form or another in in uh, a book coming up. So do you keep just like a little notebook with you? Maybe there's an app, you get a stylus out and like as you're going through your daily life, let's say you're pumping gas or, or you're, you're at the kid's baseball practice or something, does something come to your mind and you jot it down quickly so that you know you can reference that later for when you're sitting down to write? Always. So I've got, uh, so I collect those hotel notepad uh, things uh, mm -hmm. from the nightstand. I've got stacks of them and they are all over the place. But my favorite <laughs> thing is I've got in our, uh, on our bookcase, uh, we actually have a bookcase in the dining room. That's what a big book family we are. Uh, that the dining room has one whole wall lined with books. And I have this beautiful nice. black leather box that holds uh, 
paper. And it is signed with Ronald Reagan's signature in silver. And it was given to me by the Reagan Library one of the first times I ever went and spoke there. And it's a, it's a real treasure, uh, treasured gift that I have. So oftentimes I will grab paper out of there and write stuff down or else just the notes function in my iPhone. I'll, I'll drop ideas in there because I do not, middle of the night I will do it because I don't trust yeah. myself. I, I, hate, I would hate to lose a really, really good idea. And that's my stock and trade is ideas. So when one of those things pops up, that's like finding a, you know, a gold Kruger end in the backyard saying, oh, I'll pick it up later. No, you're going to pick it up right now. Right. Like, see, like what I'll do is if I think of something in the middle of the night and I don't do this as much now because of cell phones and it's right there next to me, I will constantly email myself ideas or something like mm. that. But it used to be that I would just toss a pencil or something off of the nightstand and when I'd wake up in the morning, I would be like, why is that in the middle of the, f oh yeah, that's right. You know, oh, that's clever. Someone said along the line that you're most creative the moment you wake up. And there's some mm. science behind this, but I think it was a Keith Richards interview that I was reading once. And like, that's where he wrote, can't get no satisfaction or something like that, where, where there is some science to the first few minutes after you wake up are your most creative moments of the day. And so anything that's in your head, you better write down because it's probably a gym. So that's understandable. You would do that in the middle of the night. Wow. You know, it's funny. I just got a gift uh, at Christmas. I can't remember if it was my wife or the kids who put it in my stocking, but it was actually a specially treated pad of paper with suction cups on the back that can go on the wall in the shower. So that if I get any ideas oh. in the shower, I can actually write them down, which I thought was very yes. thoughtful. Very thoughtful. Yes. I love that. Yeah. If you could go back in history and meet one person, who would it be? Wow, that's a great, great question. Um, there's so many people I would love to meet. I mean, I'd love to. You can throw out more than one. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to meet Thomas Jefferson. Uh, right. I, I got to tell you, I, living in Paris, I read about Casanova, actually. I read the memoirs of Casanova. And it was fascinating how this guy, he did so many, he was a spy. He set up the French lottery system. Of course, he's known for betting all of those women and everything, but he really did have an interesting, interesting life. And he'd be somebody that I would, I would really enjoy meeting. I think Patton would be an incredible person to meet. Um, I would love to meet uh, Wild Bill Donovan, who headed mm. the Office of Strategic Services, which was the precursor to the CIA, whose motto was, if you fall, fall forward in service of the mission. Uh, and, mm. and he was a real, uh, real character, real outside the box thinker when it came to sticking it to the Nazis. So I think he would be fascinating too. Um, yeah, I, it, there are so many. I mean, you could go back even further. Wouldn't it be neat to meet Da Vinci, um, mm. Rembrandt, people like that? Um, gosh, Hannibal. Hannibal would be mm. so interesting to meet. Uh, I particularly like to meet him when he's trying to get the elephants over the Alps. That's I what I was thinking yeah, when you said that. Yeah. I, was, I was waiting for you to finish your answer because I was going to say, you got to ask him. What were you thinking about the elephants yep. over the mountains? <laughs> Pretty darn cool. So, uh, yeah. Okay. Most embarrassing moment? Anything come to mind? Oh, wow. Recently or just overall? <laughs> Anything you want to share? Anything that, that you feel uh, like sharing with us? Boy, it's, it's – I'm so darn glasses half full optimistic. I try to – 
try to think okay. of those things as you know opportunities to grow. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, boy, most embarrassing moment. Ask me another question. And I'll see if something pops up on the embarrassing okay, moment. Then, sure. if I could think of anything sure. that's uh, that's worthy of sharing. It doesn't sound like you're going to have anything um, on your bucket list, but I could be completely wrong. But just based on your travels and your success, have you done everything that you want to do? In other words, going back to your wife's question, is there anything currently that you would regret not having done on your deathbed? Yeah, I actually would like to uh, spend some more time, longer periods of time abroad. Uh, I've been able to take my kids on vacations, but boy, more than two weeks and it just doesn't work. And I became an author because I love to write. But one of the perks I always thought would be that I have my summers off and I could travel. And, I, you know, if I've got my laptop, I could be in Mexico or I could be in Greece or I could be in Norway, something like that. Um, and that hasn't been the case because the kids have got to go to summer camp and there's this and there's that. You know, anybody who's a parent who's listening to this understands. I mean, it revolves around, <laughs> yes. revolves around the kids. I remember me being uh-huh. such a such a brilliant guy saying, well, I'm not going to tailor my life. The kids will have a wildly interesting life and they'll just come along for the ride. It doesn't work that uh-huh. way. Uh-huh. Does no, not. no. <laughs> They've got their own lives to live. That's right. So I'm looking forward to now that the pandemic is is easing and travel restrictions are being lifted and stuff like that. I'm really looking forward to traveling more uh, because one of the things I enjoy, I know how lucky I am to be an American. Uh, but I enjoy being an ambassador for our country. I enjoy meeting people from other nations and having them ask me questions about, you know, oh, this doesn't make sense. And why are there so many guns in America? And, you know, I, I like actually talking about our culture, particularly when I can take away mispers- misconceptions about the United States or, uh, you know, be a good reflection on the United States. So I-, I enjoy being in foreign countries. It's a lot of fun and it feeds my my well, my creative well. But I also like being a brand champion for the United States uh, because I love my country and uh, I-, I love crowing about it. So I do it within reason. You know, you don't want to be obnoxious in somebody else's country, but... <laughs> But, you know, you'll find people are really curious and they want to ask you questions. And, you know, why do people not like, why do so many people get so angry when a Chick-fil-A opens in Chicago? You know, I mean, I get asked crazy (laughs) questions, but I'm more than happy to to, to answer them because politics really is my baseball. So I guess if I have another hobby, Keith, politics would be it. I'm, you know, I've worked on a couple of presidential campaigns. Um, That's the way my dad, the Marine, raised us is that we don't own this country. We are merely stewards and it's our job to hand a freer, more successful, more prosperous, better America to the next generation than was handed to us. And so to do that, you need to know the issues, you need to be involved. And uh, so, boy, that is, that is one of probably my biggest passions is I am a, I'm a voracious consumer of all things political, right, left, center. You know, I want to know what everybody's thinking, what everybody's saying, uh, so that I can make the best, most well-informed decision for myself and, and my family. And that was so well said about how basically the charter of a parent, of an American parent, is to hand off a country that is better uh, for our kids than what we inherited. And 
you reminded me of something when you talked about working on a couple of presidential campaigns. I remember when you visited us here in Dallas one time, oh, and I, yeah, it just occurred to me, I took pictures of you with Thor's hammer out here. <laughs> it's in framed the in my house like the Kennedy pose yes. at the window. We have it framed not once but yes. twice. We have it in our living room, and my wife loved it so much she has it framed and in her office as well. And that was you. I remember when we did that down there. Yeah. Uh-huh. That was fun. So, yeah, and and you just shook that memory loose because at the time, I don't know how serious it was. You can see where this question is going. But at the time, there were rumors that Brad Thor may run for president, and so that's why we were. That's why I was like, hey, let's take some pictures here in the studio with you and yeah. Thor's hammer, blah blah blah. Anyway. So here's my question. How serious were you? And more importantly, have you given any serious thought in the future of possibly running for president of the United States, Brad Thorne? So I was very serious. More than anything else, I wanted to get into the primaries because I wanted an opportunity to make sure, uh, you know, the Republicans had let me down way too often. They told me years ago that if we could just get control of Congress, then if we could control the Senate, and then if we could get a Republican in the White House. And one of my big things is, is I think national debt is a national security issue. Uh, I don't like overspending. I don't like it when the Democrats do it, and I like it even less when the Republicans do it. You know, the Republicans, I, I used to make this joke that Democrats only use the word compromise when they're in the minority, and Republicans only use the words fiscal responsibility when they're in the minority. So both sides crow about these things that sound really good, but when they have the power, they don't do it. You know, Obamacare was pushed through without a single Republican vote, so no compromise there. And uh, we, we racked up massive debt uh, during the four years of the Trump administration. There wasn't a scaling back. Uh, certain things, I agree, need to be done and all that kind of stuff, but it's difficult to cut taxes and raise spending. Uh, in, in, and now Joe Biden's $6 trillion budget. I mean, it's, it's insane. You know, a trillion here, a trillion there, it starts to add up to real money. Uh, right. So my desire to get involved in the Republican primary process was to, to hopefully capture some attention uh, and, and draw focus to, to things that we needed to be talking about. Uh, and the further I got down that road, the more I realized I wasn't going to get any support in the Republican Party for that. There, there was no, you know, Joe Walsh ran and everything. There, there just wasn't the stomach to actually have a robust uh, discussion of ideas and policy. And that's where I was coming from. In fact, there was, no, there was no party platform. I think that's the first time ever that the Republican Party did not put forth a platform. They just said, you know, we're not doing it. It's whatever President Trump says, and that's the platform. So... Um, so that kind of put the kibosh on that one. Uh, as far as ever running for president, I, I really do believe that uh, you got to do a little bit. Let me put it this way. I would want to have accomplished more before doing it. I would like to, uh, to, to be responsible, to be answerable to the entire American population without even being answerable to a local constituency, whether you're on the school board or you run for Congress or something like that. I, I think it's too much of a leap. I think there's a reason we have minor leagues in baseball and people play in the minors before they go to the majors. I, I think that kind of 
what, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not internship, it's apprenticeship. Let's, let's put it okay. that way, to kind of learn how the sausage is made, how policy right. is done, uh, to, to, to learn, you know, I, I think it's, it's important. And to, on the job training at that level of president, that's a little, it's a little rough. I think, it's, I think it's one of the reasons why we so like governors when they run because you know they've had the national guard they've they've run the state and, and a lot of it is is similar the the things that they face uh obviously short of national defense stuff really uh so yeah i don't think it'd be a straight run ever for for president it would be okay you know i've had a i've had a great career my kids are off uh and now i want to try my hand at politics and i'm going to start at the local level and, and earn my way up as high as uh, okay. voters might want to send me. Seven years next month, I've been down here, so it's a it's a great state, and uh, you know it's funny when I meet Nashvilleians or just Tennesseans in general. I, I always like to tell the story because they say, "Why'd you come here from Chicago?" Blah blah blah. Too many Chicago people. I said, "Don't worry, I'm not going to screw things up. I actually like the way things are here." And there's a yeah. story that Reagan used to tell about someone who had escaped Cuba, sitting in a cafe in Miami with a lawyer, an American lawyer, and an American doctor, and tells the story about how he escaped Castro's Cuba and the lawyer looks at the American lawyer looks at the American doctor and says wow what a story aren't we lucky and the Cuban looks at the two Americans uh, and says you're not the lucky ones I am I had some place to go which is here and if you don't protect it there is nowhere else to go yep absolutely and I think I think how those in Tennessee view those moving down from Chicago. It's kind of like how we in Texas the view California's. those moving in from California. Yeah. And the thing about Tennessee that's so great, and I hope it's still this way. I think it was probably 20 years ago now. But I'll recall that the legislature there was trying to implement an income tax, a state income tax. And people kept showing up every time they would try to debate this, if I remember this story correctly. And that's why, to this day, a state income tax doesn't exist in Tennessee. Is that, I mean, that, that is the case, right? It is the case. It was one of the uh, one of the great things about moving down here from Chicago, which is so right. mismanaged. And the other thing is, is that they had a tax on capital gains. And I said, to, you know, I said to people I knew in the legislature here, I said, boy, this is a great place to raise your family. But then as soon as you retire, you got to leave. I said, that's ridiculous. Why would you chase away people who are retirees? Why wouldn't we want to have them here? And God bless the, the lawmakers in Tennessee. They decided to repeal uh, mm. this. It was called the Hall tax here. And it was a, this capital gains tax. And so they repealed it. And it, it's this is a very, Nashville's not been as well run financially as it should be. A lot of bond debt. Uh, but they just thought the party would never end. Uh, we get a lot of money from tourism. Uh, it's a great, great place to visit. But the pandemic and the shutdowns, that's a lot of hotel fees and taxes yeah. and things like that that Nashville has lost out on. And, uh, you know, so a lot of places are doing okay. Uh, there have just been some very interesting reports about how well some places have been doing. Uh, it's been tough for Nashville, but uh, this is a great town and we expect all the parties to come roaring back. And, and we're a very resilient uh, group of folks who love to take care of each other and, and love to show people from out of town a good time. So great place yeah. to come. Come to Nashville. Come to Tennessee. Tennessee is a great state. Uh, as a Georgia boy, uh, growing up in Atlanta, I, I've been I've been in Tennessee quite a bit, and I and I it's just a beautiful, 
beautiful part of the country. Yeah. Okay. Um, did we think of an embarrassing moment? Anything come to mind or should we move on? I don't know. You know, I try to roll with stuff and I, you know, I, I take my job seriously and my responsibilities seriously, but I don't take myself that seriously. So I kind of, you know, that stuff, if, if I do have a bad moment, I kind of let it let it go and it's in the past. I don't dwell on it. Uh, Swedes are very good at carrying grudges but not against ourselves, you know, we'll, we'll carry a grudge against a neighbor or a family member forever. <laughs> but uh, if I if I do something embarrassing, I forget all about it. What is currently in your Amazon cart? So currently in my Amazon cart, it's funny, <laughs> I just uh, I just pulled the trigger on my Amazon cart. Uh, so I read an interesting book called Twilight of Democracy by Anne Applebaum. And it focused on uh, the political situations in Poland and in Hungary. And it was fascinating about how liberty is eroding, democracy is eroding, and she used those as two places that were examples. So I bought a new book. I, this is not going to be the feel-good uh, book list of the podcast. I got one called, <laughs> uh, I think, How Democracy Dies. Glenn really got me interested in uh, years ago what happened kind of in 1930s Germany with the Weimar the Weimar Republic and uh, this this lie that the Jews had stabbed Germany in the back and the onerous uh, reparations the Germans had to pay for World War One and how that led to a bad economic condition. So I, I like to I like to look at history and look at nonfiction books about democracy because we're more fractured than ever. We, we are running up debt like crazy. And I want to make sure that I'm as educated as I can be as a steward of the Republic so that if we see like three different routes we could take in front of us and I've done my homework and I can encourage people in my sphere of influence, hey guys, gentlemen and ladies, a, Route A, this road A over here is better than B, and you don't even want to walk down C. It may look good from where you're standing right now, but let me tell you what happens halfway down that road, and we don't want to go there as Americans, okay? A is the way to go. That's part of my job. That's part of your job, Keith. That's part of the job of everybody listening to this. We can't just put America on autopilot. America does not work unless we are engaged as stewards, as citizens. Uh, it is a it is a republic that only exists if we are the best versions of ourselves we can be. Uh, it's great to pursue our own self-interest, but that has to be done against the backdrop of what it means to be a citizen. So I think a lot of people forget that. Oh, you're absolutely right. And that is very well said. Now, I'm going to actually plan out the next seven years of your life. Are you ready? <laughs> okay, here we go. All right, let me take okay. a note. So the Scott Harvath series, you have published a book every year since what 2002 correct you've been very disciplined as a writer you just signed a contract for four more books so i'm going to assume that in 2022 23 24 all the way through 2025 you're going to be adding to that series so far is that accurate so far that's accurate so in 2025 after after you've done your media tour for the uh 24th installment yep it, correct. That's when you are going to hit the road and start campaigning for the presidential race of 2028. You're welcome. 
You're welcome. Uh, and I can be your official photographer. Uh, you can sure. go around with I, it. No, I'm going to make sure my wife does not listen to this podcast. <laughs> but let me ask you, what do you prefer uh, roofing tax or uh, just straight nails in your pipe bomb? So when my wife decides to send it to you, <laughs> she does not want me going into politics at all. No, she doesn't. I'm with you, man. 15 years ago, I kind of flirted with the idea of running for Congress someday. And I quickly shut that down because it does not on any level whatsoever seem worth it. I will I will help be a steward of the republic like you just so eloquently put uh, from from where I'm at. How about that? Well, that's good. I mean, not everybody can, nor should everybody go. Uh, history is replete with examples of people that, that should never have made it to office. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> Huey Long. I mean, I could go on and on and on about people that never should have been there. Uh, but there are right. things we all can do. And the big thing, probably the greatest thing I could do would be to find a way to make civic virtue sexy. How does being, uh, you know, a, a good citizen, how, how does that become something that people actually aspire to? That, you know, we used to keep, we used to say, uh, what will the neighbors think? Now, a lot of us don't even know our neighbors' names, and that's not good. That's not healthy. True. Um, I, I read Charles Murray's book, uh, Coming Apart, and uh, I think it was in Coming Apart, or no, it was Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, and there's a cocktail party question I love to ask people, and I say, what was the one invention of the 20th century that you think served to isolate us from each other more than anything else? So what, what would you say, Keith? Okay, to isolate us, I'm going to go with the garage. That's a gr Actually, that's one of the best <laughs> answers I've ever received on this. And you're so close to what Putnam said. That's oh, very wow. good, Keith. Gold star for you. Um, Putnam said air conditioning. Because uh -huh. yeah, we used to sit outside on the stoop trying to catch a cool breeze moms would push prams up and down the street trying to catch a cool breeze and we used to stop and talk to our neighbors that was a big deal but as soon as air conditioning came along we locked ourselves in our houses and we didn't see each other so, so true yeah it's a really it's a really really good example of um kind of unintended consequences of uh something you wouldn't normally give another thought too but uh so it's it's interesting so that's my that's that's my big thing we are we are living through interesting times and um you know all through the lockdowns and the pandemic uh, i just tried to remind my own family you know leave room for grace uh just people are going through tough times uh people are concerned about their way of life their livelihood you know there's been a lot of it's tough not knowing what tomorrow's going to look like it's hard to make plans it's been it's been difficult but we are we are resilient people we're made of great stock and uh i i have no doubt that uh maybe by the even the time of the the broadcast this podcast we're we've roared right back it could be the a, a brand new roaring 20s i hope so sir i i do hope so okay uh bradthor.com or i guess probably amazon.com is a good place to go in order right now black ice the scott harvath series rolls on with brad thor get this book and remember, like Brad said, you can pick it up anywhere. You don't have to read in chronological order. That's that's a genius way to do it, man. Um, anything I've missed out? Uh, anything we need to cover? Anything that comes to mind here? No, this has been great. Great questions. Thank you very much. Cool. Absolutely. Thanks for making time. 
Brad Thor on At The Mic. Thank you so much, sir. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Keith. Thanks for having me. I had fun chatting with Brad today, and I hope that you learned something that uh, you didn't know before listening to this podcast. There's a lot more to him than just being a writer. That being said, be sure to order his brand new book. Hey, coming up next week, I'm going to sit down with a high school buddy of mine who has some memorable stories to share with us. Some are about me. Rick Goins has lived a life that has taken him to New York City, Los Angeles, California, uh, points in between. It had him writing screenplays, appearing on a television show. We're going to sit down with my friend Ricky next week. Until then, please don't forget the website at themikeshow.com. Please share that link with your friends and encourage them to take a look around and click on any interviews that look interesting to them. Because growing this podcast is the key. Uh, we can do that by having more people discovering it. So if you could share this at themikeshow.com, I would be quite grateful. Just pick one person in your life to do so, and that would make all the difference. Until next week, go be free, and thank you for listening to At The Mic. This has been At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Head to at themikeshow.com for archived episodes, sponsor information, and ways to connect.